Ezra chapter 9. And after the reading, I'm just going to launch straight into a prayer, uh, which the words are not my own words, or not wholly my own words, but it felt totally appropriate to read this prayer of uh, repentance, which is exactly where um, Ezra is with the people of Israel. So after these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, the people of Israel, including the priests and Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amorites. They have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And the leaders and officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. When I heard this, I tore my tunic and cloak. I pulled hair from my head and beard and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of God of Israel gathered around me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles. I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. Then, at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn, and I fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God, and I prayed. I am too ashamed and disgraced, my God, to lift my face to you, because our sins are higher than our heads, and our guilt has reached to the heavens. From the days of our ancestors until now, our guilt has been great. Because of our sins, we and our kings and our priests have been subjected to the sword and captivity, to pillage and humiliation at the hands of foreign kings, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. Though we are slaves, our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. He has shown kindness in the sight of the kings of Persia. He has granted us new life to rebuild the house of our God and to repair its ruins. He has given us a wall of protection in Judah and Jerusalem. But now, our God, what can we say after this? For we have forsaken your commands, the commands you gave us through your servants, the prophets, when you said, The land you are entering to possess is a land polluted by the corruption of its peoples. By their detestable practices, they have filled it with, the impu with impurity from one end to the other. Therefore, do not give your daughters in marriage to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons. Do not seek a treaty of friendship with them at any time, that you may be strong and eat the good things of the land, and leave it to your children as an everlasting inheritance." What has happened to us is a result of our evil deeds and our guilt and our great guilt. And yet, our God, you have punished us less than our sins deserve and has given us a remnant like this. 
Shall we then break your commands again and intermarry with the people who commit such detestable practices? Would you not be angry enough with us to destroy us, leaving us no remnant or survivor? Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt. Though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. While Ezra was praying and confessing, weeping and throwing himself down before the house of God, a large crowd of Israelites, men, women and children gathered around him, and they too wept bitterly. I'm going to now pray, uh, read this prayer of repentance and some of the things in it we may be able to identify with ourselves, some for our church, some things for our national church, and some things for our nation itself. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, you are good. Your steadfast love endures forever, and your faithfulness to all generations. We come on bended knee to acknowledge our utter dependence upon you, our Creator, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. You are God of the Old and New Testaments. Your covenant of love with us, who believe, is sealed by the blood of your Son. Your promise to bless us as we believe, honour and obey you, and to judge us if we do not, continues to force. Lord, today we fall on our knees before you, asking you to help us humble ourselves, not only today but every day. Hear our prayer and forgive our sins and heal our land. We have been proud and arrogant as individuals, families, churches, and as a nation. You have blessed us, but we have taken your blessing for granted. You are worthy of our love and devotion. Instead, we have forgotten you and ignored your word. We have not esteemed you as Almighty God, nor have we honoured, served and obeyed you as we ought. Few of us are walking in pure devotion to you, worshipping wholeheartedly, praying without ceasing and daily feeding upon your word. Too few of us have given ourselves enthusiastically to your will and laboured diligently to finish your work. Rather, we have forsaken you, the spring of living water, and imbibe the stagnant waters of our modern culture. You call us to be light, to live holy lives, to walk in Christian love, and carry the gospel of Christ to all nations. Instead, we have withheld the grace of your gospel from our family, friends, neighbours and co-workers, allowing far too many to face a godless eternity. You command us to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, yet our youth are abandoning the faith in unprecedented numbers. While we ignore your command to preach the gospel, those who serve false gods zealously proselytize, trapping millions in eternal darkness and confusion. We have been complacent, apathetic, lazy, disobedient and unfaithful to your call. You charge us to be salt to our culture, to preserve the truth and all that is godly and pure.
Yet we have allowed the rot of godless media and entertainment to fill our homes. Instead of permeating our culture with vital biblical truth, instead of filling our homes, churches, schools, businesses, halls of government, and thus our nation with the eternal truth and reality, we have allowed them to be infected by lies and spiritual darkness. Instead of changing the world, the world has changed us. We seem impotent. Having failed to be the salt of the earth, we are fast becoming good for nothing except to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. Lord, the living faith of our forefathers, their love and devotion to their children and their commitment to future generations compelled them to sacrifice their lives for us. Yet we have become the me generation. We elect leaders not for their righteousness, but their promise to give us benefits. Absorbed with our own lives and material possessions, we have lost sight of all that is important. God and family, our neighbours, our fellow countrymen, and the people beyond the seas whom you love and for whom you gave your son. Now our nation is under judgment. Our government is divided and torn in every direction. International terrorists penetrate our borders. The economy is under immense pressure. Millions are unable to earn a living wage. And the weak and vulnerable are being forced onto the streets and turned to drink and drugs to ease the pain. Our leaders mortgage our children's future to build political monuments to themselves. Our jails and prisons are overfilled. Our children are enslaved by unthinkable sins, sex, drugs and alcohol. Abortion and sexual immorality have become protected rights. And legislators, judges and governors impose homosexual marriage upon their citizens. Our schools teach that marriage between a man and a man is morally equivalent to holy matrimony between a man and a woman. Evil is called good and good is called evil. The curses you warned would come to a disobedient people have come upon us. Unless you, Lord, intervene and bring revival to the church, awakening to the nation and spiritual reformation to our culture, our once God-blessed nation will go the way of ancient Israel. Lord, we cry out to you today, hear our cry. Help us to seek your face. Show us your face and help us to turn from our wicked ways. Lord, heal our land. Show us mercy. Forgive us our sins and cleanse us. Revive your church. Set our pulpits aflame with righteousness. Purge compromise from our pews and cause your word to go forth to every city and town in the UK. Make your people salt and light again. Raise up godly leaders in church and state and grant that we might lead quiet and peaceable lives in godliness and honesty. Help us to return wholly to you and return to us, Lord, we pray in the name of Jesus, knowing that your word declares the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Amen. It's a pretty broken world, isn't it? And it was no different in Ezra's day. Um, so why don't we 
pray again and pray that the truth of this passage would uh, warm our hearts because the Lord Jesus is the solution uh, to the broken world in which we live. So Lord God, we pray that as we come to your word now, we wouldn't just see the brokenness and the pain and the disorder in your world. We pray that we would see the Lord Jesus as a great solution, the one who'll reorder, reform and make right all that is wrong. Help us to look to him this week and always we pray. Amen. Now, I don't know whether you would um, consider yourself a creature of habit or not. As I was preparing today, I asked myself that question and uh, realized pretty quickly that I am a creature of habit. Uh, The last nine years, myself and Han have been camping in Cornwall as our holiday. Uh, Not only that, we've been to the same campsite. Uh, Not only that, we've been on the same pitch, B18, uh, Boobies Bay, Mother Ivy's campsite. When it comes to camping, there's no doubt that the Wellses are creatures of habit. But it's not just camping. Uh, last uh, Wednesday, week last Wednesday, it was our anniversary, we went out uh, as normal uh, to Pizza Express because we get it on Tesco vouchers and we turned up there. And uh, we didn't even have to look at the menu. We knew exactly what we were going to have because we always have the same thing. One Polo at Astra Pizza, one Polo Pesto Pasta, and we share those dishes uh, between us. I could go on. I think by nature, certainly we as the Wellses are creatures of habit, but I think we are all creatures of habit. As I look out now in the congregation, I'm not surprised by where 95% of you are sat, because you either sit in exactly the same seat or at the very least in the same area of church. Why? Because there's something about familiarity that makes us feel comfortable. And sadly this morning, as we come to Ezra chapter 9 and 10, we'll see that God's people are overly familiar with sin. And they return to the same godless place again and again. As it says in Proverbs 26 verse 11, as a dog returns to its vomit, so fools repeat their folly. In the same way that a dog returns to its own pile of sick, people return to their own foolish ways. We too are creatures of habits when it comes to sin, hence the ongoing need for reform in our lives that we thought about last week. And that's why I've called Ezra chapter 9 and 10 repeats, because in these two chapters, we see God's people repeat the sins of their forefathers. They are incredibly slow to learn from their past mistakes. But before we look at these two chapters together, just a a quick reminder of the journey we've been on so far in the book of Ezra, particularly for those who are visiting this morning back in Ezra chapter 1 and 2. We thought about the return of God's people from exile in Babylon to Jerusalem. In chapter 3 and 4, we see them rebuild all that was lost in those days of judgment, beginning with the altar and then committing themselves to the work of the Lord and temple building. Then in chapter 5 and 6, the people rejoiced at the completion of the temple. God had restored his people to that place of worship. And then last week, through the teaching and the council of Ezra, we see God's commitment to reform, to bringing his people back in line with his word. And as we'll see this morning, reform is no one-off event. It is an ongoing process in the life of a Christian believer. Four questions for us that I think are drawn from this passage to ask ourselves collectively, not just individually this morning. And the first one's up there on the screen. Will we 
acknowledge our sin. I'll look down if you would at verse 1 and 2 of chapter 9. After these things had been done, the leaders came to me and said, The people of Israel, including the priests and the Levites, have not kept themselves separate from the neighboring peoples with their detestable practices like those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, etc. Verse 2, they've taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and their sons and have mingled the holy race with the peoples around them. And maybe worst of all, the leaders and the officials have led the way in this unfaithfulness. Now, we met Ezra, of course, last week, leading the second wave of returnees back from Babylon, 457 B.C. And if you remember, his job was pretty simple. First job was to uphold the word of God. Ezra was a man devoted to the study, the observance, and the teaching of the law of the Lord. And he did it well. He held up the word of God to the people. But his job wasn't just to teach the word of God. His job, if you remember, was also to inquire of the people, to look them in the eye and to ask them the difficult questions of life and of faith and apply the word of God to their lives in order to bring about lasting change and reform. Well, by the time we arrive in chapter 9, Ezra has now been back in Jerusalem For about four months and prompted, no doubt, by his preaching, a delegation comes knocking at the door. And their message in verse 1 and 2 is pretty clear. We failed. The people of God have failed. And they failed in exactly the same way that their forefathers did. They've not kept themselves separate from the nations around them. They've mingled spiritually and they've joined in with their detestable Practices And as a result, they have been unfaithful to the Lord. Now, the specific issue that's been addressed in chapter 9 and 10 is that of intermarrying with people of other nations, which in the end will lead them away from the Lord. It is a common note of warning that is struck throughout the Bible. Have a look back at Deuteronomy chapter 7. Verse 3 and 4, these are words that God spoke to Israel on the brink of the promised land through Moses. They're about to inherit all that God has promised. And he says to them, do not intermarry with them, with these people. Do not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons. Why? For they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. Now, the command itself might sound pretty strange to modern ears, but you see what's at stake in verse 4? This isn't a racial thing. This is a spiritual thing. People are in danger of being led away from God, and it's no different today. Now, we'll address the specific question of marriage and intermarriage later, but as a general principle, we must ask ourselves this question. Are we, too, in danger of adopting the sinful practices of the nations around us are we too in danger of being led astray by those around us we've heard it in the prayers already it was our job and joy to bring the good news to the nations but the nation's news is in fact infecting the church as the apostle paul says in romans chapter 12 do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world do not fit in Do not adopt the the sinful practices of those around you. Do not go the way of others who are not going the way of the Lord, but instead be transformed 
by the renewing of your mind, then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The first step towards ongoing spiritual reform is to acknowledge our sin. And the second step is to grieve it. Which brings us to our second question. Will we mourn our sin? Have a look down at verse 3. This is how Ezra responds as this delegation comes knocking at his door with the news that we've just heard about. When I heard this, says Ezra, I tore my tunic and cloak, pulled hair from my head and beard, and sat down appalled. Then everyone who trembled at the words of the God of Israel gathered round me because of this unfaithfulness of the exiles, and I sat there appalled until the evening sacrifice. It's a powerful picture, isn't it? The tearing of clothes is a sign of of great distress. The ripping out of hair is a sign of intense grief. Ezra is appalled at the behavior of his own people. And thankfully in verse 4, we learn that there's a number of others who stand with Ezra and share in that grief. It's a lovely expression, isn't it, in verse 4? Then everyone who trembled at the words of God... Those who tremble that a God who speaks is a picture of those who have a right view of God Almighty and a right view of their own sin. They tremble before God in reverent fear, in holy appreciation, and they join with Ezra in mourning, in grieving the sin of God's people. It's interesting, isn't it, how the sin of one or the response, sorry, to the sin of of one person can affect other people. As you see here, Ezra's response to sin has a dramatic impact on those around him, doesn't it? I remember when I was young, I'm not going to tell you what I did, but I remember admitting something to my mum that I'd done, and I'll never forget her face. Her face was just an expression of shame and disappointment. And seeing that grief in my mum actually brought a deeper sense of conviction in my own heart. That led me not just to acknowledge sin, not just to admit sin and just march on with life, but to grieve it, to feel it in my own heart. And that's what's going on here in verse 3 and 4. You see, there is a big difference between admitting our sin and grieving it, really mourning our sin in our own hearts. So let me ask you this question. When was the last time you really grieved sin? When was the last time that you sat down appalled at the sheer sinfulness of sin and how incredibly destructive it is to God's world and to God's people? Now, of course, there's different ways of expressing our grief towards sin. I'm not suggesting that you start ripping your shirt and pulling your hair out. That was pretty cultural to Ezra's day. God's not calling us to copy Ezra in his actions, but he is calling us to copy Ezra in his attitude towards sin. So let me ask you again, do you hate sin? Do you hate it? Is it repulsive to you in your heart? Do you recognize how deeply offensive it is to God and how much it grieves his loving heart? Blessed are those who mourn, says Jesus, for they shall be comforted. It doesn't say blessed are those who admit their sin. It actually says blessed are those who mourn 
their sin. Blessed are those who feel the weight of sin in their own hearts before giving it to the Lord Jesus. Of course, the day will come when we grieve sin no more. (laughs) The day we stand in glory, we will be free from these established patterns of sinful behavior in our own lives. But until that day comes, until that glorious day of liberation from all that sin has done, we should mourn. Because of what sin has done to God's world and to God's heart. Firstly, will we acknowledge our sin? Secondly, will we mourn our sin? Thirdly, will we confess our sin? You can see the logical flow of things in verse 5. Then at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my self-abasement with my tunic and cloak torn and fell on my knees with my hands spread out to the Lord my God and prayed after a day of grieving Ezra gets up only to fall down again and he falls down on his knees in humility and he spreads out his hands in sheer dependence on God and he cries out in prayer and the content of Ezra's prayer is so instructive to us verse 6 I'm too ashamed and disgraced my God to lift up my face to you because our sins are higher than our heads and our guilt has reached the heavens what a powerful picture that is does it ring bells for the tax collector in Luke chapter 18 who stood at a distance he would not even look up to heaven but beat his breast and said God have mercy on me a sinner The tax collector had nowhere to go but to God. Ezra had nowhere to go but to God. And guess what? We've got nowhere to go but to God as we bank on his goodness and not our own. Prayer continues in verse 7. Ezra goes on to recall the sins of Israel's past. But then in verse 8, he also recalls God's incredible grace towards them. But now, for a brief moment, the Lord our God has been gracious in leaving us a remnant and giving us a firm place in his sanctuary. And so our God gives light to our eyes and a little relief in our bondage. I remember coming out of hospital after a shoulder operation uh, it was pretty painful for about a week, and when it got too bad, you'd pop a couple of codeine tablets in, and you get a get a couple of hours of lovely, blissful relief from the pain that you're experiencing. That's what it felt like for the people of God. In the context of centuries of self-inflicted suffering, God in his kindness has brought them back. He's restored them. He's brought them to himself. He's poured out grace upon their lives. Light, love, relief, kindness. But now they're in danger of throwing it all back in his face again. Verse 14, shall we then break your commands again? Are we going to go back there again, says Ezra, to commit the same sins that put us into exile in the first place? And intermarry with the peoples who commit such detestable practices. Have we not learned? You can see why Ezra was ripping his hair out, can't you? And you know what? If Ezra was still here today, I reckon he'd only have half a beard still. Because in many ways, we're no different to the saved remnant in Ezra's day. We too fall into repeated patterns of sinful behavior. And we too are unable to stand in the presence of God without a saviour. 
Have a look how Ezra concludes his prayer in verse 15. Lord, the God of Israel, you are righteous. We are left this day as a remnant. Here we are before you in our guilt, though because of it, not one of us can stand in your presence. Without Christ, not one person can stand in the presence of God. And so to the cross we go. Nowhere else to go, is there? To the cross we go. You see, however many times we've repeated the sins of our past, however deeply ingrained within our lives are these sinful patterns of behavior, we can now stand in the presence of God, not only free from the penalty of sin, but free from the prevailing power of sin in our lives because every last grain of guilt has already been laid to the account of the Lord Jesus. And his spirit comes to live in our hearts to give us new life and new power to fight sin. There is wonderful blessing in confessing. As we read in Psalm 32, verse 9, Do not be like the horse or the mule, which have no understanding, but must be controlled by bit and bridle, or they will not come to you. Confession isn't about being dragged before the offended party and forced to say sorry. It is about coming freely before the Lord with a broken and a contrite heart. And so if there's anything particular in your heart and life that needs confessing today, don't be like the mule. Don't stubbornly pull against it. Don't turn away. Go freely to the Lord. Fall at the foot of the cross once again. Confess your sin and know the the boundless riches of God's grace in Christ Jesus. Firstly, will we acknowledge our sin? Secondly, will we mourn our sin? Thirdly, will we confess our sin? And lastly, will we repent of our sin? Have a look down at chapter 10, verse 2 and 3. Then Shechaniah, son of Jael, one of the descendants of Elam, said to Ezra, We have been unfaithful to our God by marrying foreign women from the peoples around us. But in spite of this, there is still hope for Israel. Now let us make a covenant before our God to send away all these women and their children in accordance with the counsel of my Lord and of those who fear the commands of God. Let it be done according to the law. The action they propose feels pretty drastic, doesn't it? To send away all these women and their children. How does that make you feel? When you read a text like that, those that have intermarried wrongly, to send them away. Well, before we jump to any wrong conclusions, there's three things that are worth considering. Firstly, please don't read divorce in Ezra chapter 10. The Lord is certainly not encouraging divorce. We know that from what he says in the New Testament in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This is what Paul says. To the rest I say this, if any brother, Christian man, has a wife who is not a believer and she is willing to live with him, he must not divorce her. And if a, if a Christian sister, if a woman is a husband who's not a believer and he's willing to live with her, she must not divorce him. You see, marriage is binding, whatever the belief systems of the two parties. Secondly, this is to be done in accordance with the law of the Lord. Please don't think that the women and the children in view here in verse 3 would have been treated badly. The law of the Lord has an incredibly high bar when it comes to love and to caring, particularly for the marginalized and the vulnerable, which without doubt would have included the women 
and the children, they would have been cared for wonderfully, assuming things were done in accordance with what God had said. And then thirdly, if you get a chance, it's probably worth reading through Malachi uh, chapter 2. That was written also into this context that we're reading about here. And it sheds a bit of further light, I think, on what's going on. What it seems was happening is that these, uh, that these Jewish men who were married to Jewish women had actually cast away their Jewish wives in favor of a Gentile alternative. And God is calling them to put that right. What's happening here isn't divorce. It is a recommitment to those original God-honoring marriages which the Lord had established. It's another example of reform, of commitment, of recommitment to the ways of God. And so in response to this initial proposal that we've read about there in verse 2 and verse 3, the Lord's people gather together for what is a fairly large members meeting, and the verdict is given in verse 10 through to 12. Then Ezra the priest stood up and said to them, here's the verdict to the people. You have been unfaithful. You've married foreign women, adding to Israel's guilt. Now honor the Lord, the God of your ancestors, and do his will. Separate yourselves from the peoples around you and from your foreign wives. The whole assembly responded with a loud voice, you are right. We must do as you say. And so the people of God make an incredibly bold decision. And whatever you make of that decision, what is abundantly clear is the radical action that they took. In fact, what follows in verse 16 and 17 is a three-month inquiry as each individual case is investigated. Point being, sin is serious and repentance must be thorough. It's not enough. To acknowledge sin in our heads, we must forsake sin in our hearts. There must be a practical outworking to repentance. Otherwise, we ask ourselves the question of its authenticity. As one commentator said, repentance is not just saying sorry to God. It is a deep and heartfelt response to God's character and our own failings, which causes us to throw ourselves upon God's mercy. Repentance is more than saying sorry. It is an active turning away from our sinful attitudes and behaviors. If we've been walking this way away from the Lord, if we've been adopting the sinful practices of those around us, if we've ignored the commands of God and we're going our own way to repent is to turn around. It is turned back to the Lord and to say sorry and to, by the grace of God, to not go back there again. Repentance is not just saying sorry. It is a willful, conscience decision to turn away from those things that are not right and to turn back to the Lord and to throw our weight upon him. In Ezra chapter 10, God's people are ruthless. You may think too ruthless, but they are ruthless in dealing with their sin. And so must we be if we want to avoid repeating the sins of our past. Well, before we finish, there's one final thing to say about the process of, of repentance or reformation, which is often neglected, but it's incredibly important. It's pretty clear in the passage before us today, and that is the corporate nature of it. Did you hear that in the language throughout? God's people acknowledge their sin together. They mourn their sin together. They confess their sin together and they address their sin. They repent of their sin 
together. You see, this process of reform isn't something we're called to do on our own. Of course, there's a personal part to it. But it's something that we're called to do collectively as the people of God, as we love each other, as the Lord desires. By nature, we're creatures of habits when it comes to sin. But please remember that by the grace of God, those sinful patterns of behavior can be broken. Because in Jesus Christ, we have one who is victorious over sin, whose life and whose death is perfectly sufficient. And so we finish with these words from Proverbs chapter 21, verse 31. The horse is made ready for the day of battle, but the victory rests with the Lord. Point being, we need to ready the horse for battle. We need, as Ezra did, to take responsibility for the sin in our own hearts. But as we do, we remember where the victory comes from. The victory rests in the Lord and not with us. And that is a beautiful thing. In a moment, we're going to come to the Lord's table. And we're going to remember his victory on our behalf. But before we do, let me leave you those four questions to contemplate again in your own mind and your own hearts before we come to remember and rejoice in the one who is victorious over all these things. Take a moment to yourself.